The text to which we'll be giving our attention is 1 Kings chapter 13, the whole chapter. And as it's a long chapter, of course, we will not read it again, but you will be helped by having your Bibles with you and open to that chapter. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this, surely this passage has to be one of the most bizarre and mysterious passages in the Old Testament. After an initial reading, and this was very much my experience in writing the sermon too, after an initial reading we wonder, what are you even supposed to do with a chapter like this? Why was it recorded for us? It leaves us with many unanswered questions, like for example, why does God kill the one prophet whose failure was understandable and yet he doesn't kill the other one who blatantly lied in the name of the Lord? Or what's with the lion and the donkey standing there in the road? And the big question is, what's the overall message for us? This chapter, it it stands out like a pause or an interlude in the history of Israel, and we're left wondering, why is it even, even here? Well, let's try and answer some of those questions as we give our attention to this text In verse 1, we find Jeroboam, that's the king of Israel, the the northern ten tribes, standing before an altar in Bethel, about to offer a sacrifice to God on that altar, with a golden calf nearby, which is supposed to represent God. It's like one of those, those pictures you find on the back of cereal boxes that says, how many things can you find wrong with this picture? Now, that said, I'm sure it was a very solemn ceremony, not that Jeroboam was a particularly godly man, but he had figured something out that every successful politician knows. To win the people's loyalty, you need to present yourself as a very spiritual person. It doesn't matter whether your life actually reflects that spirituality or whether that's biblical in any serious, uh, in any serious way, but people like political leaders who also happen to be very spiritual people. So we find Jeroboam standing next to this golden calf representation of God and about to offer up sacrifices on this altar that he made. And it's all a very solemn and and sacred and spiritual ceremony. And then as that ceremony is taking place, a man sort of works his way up to the front of the crowd and he suddenly breaks the solemnity of the whole occasion by yelling out at that altar, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Not a very good person to mention right now in the northern tribes. They had just left the house of David. A son shall be born to that house, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now that's one way to ruin a solemn ceremony. Just about everything about that interruption would have been annoying to the people there. They would have immediately recognized that he was a southerner from Judah. At this time, they would have had distinct accents in Judah. And and that would be just the sort of person they would expect to come along and ruin the fun. Because this whole thing was set up to prevent contact with people from Judah. And if the fact that a southerner was ruining their ceremony, if that wasn't enough, he had to bring up the line of David. It would be kind of like a Canadian coming down into the States right after the Revolutionary War or 
the war of rebellion, whatever you call it here, and, and saying, behold, a son shall be born to King George. That's not the right way to, to introduce yourself. The Israelites were sick and tired of David's line, and understandably so, and they had just declared independence from the Davidic kings. So they were probably thinking, somebody get that crazy southerner loyalist out of here because we've never heard of this son of David that he's speaking of and we frankly don't care much for the one that we have heard of either. Just the kind of person they would have expected to come along and ruin the fun. And then just before the security guards could come and grab this guy, the, prophets, the prophet also yelled out, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Well, at this point, Jeroboam gets up and he yells for somebody to get their hands on that guy. But the moment he does so, his outstretched hand withered up, and he couldn't even pull it back to himself. And we don't know what exactly God did to his arm, but it is a good reminder that we're ultimately not even in control of our own muscles without the, without the permission of God. Well, at that moment, it would have been really nice for the king to just sort of pull his hand back and pretend that he hadn't said anything, but everyone could now see his outstretched arm pointing at the prophet, and he couldn't even pull it back. It's kind of like social media where once you open your mouth, Especially if you're a politician, there's no taking it back. It's hard to pretend he didn't just say what he said. Everyone could see his hand outstretched. And then to make matters even worse, the altar did, in fact, break open before everyone's eyes, and the ashes that were on it split out or, or, or were poured out. So it would have been a terrifying thing also for everyone to see. Well, the king clearly had enough sense to see when he was losing and so he changes his tune. Changing circumstances demand changing relationships. This is how politics works. So in verse 6, he says to, to the prophet, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. It's a pretty humbling favor to have to ask from your enemy. Can you, can you please ask God if I can please have my hand back? Well, the prophet from Judah did ask God, and God granted that request, but at that point, the king had been pretty thoroughly humiliated, and the ceremony was certainly over. So the king does what every smart politician would do, even in a situation like that. He tries to act like he's still in control, and he even pretends like he and the prophet are really on the same team. If you can't beat them, join them, as the saying goes. So he invited the prophet to come to his palace and refresh himself, and he even promised him a reward, a gift. It takes a lot of nerve to pretend that you're the one in the position of doing, uh, doing this prophet a favor right after he's taken control of his own arm. But he must have, his hope must have been to leave the people with the impression that he and the prophet are really on the same team and that he's the one doing the prophet a favor by inviting him to his palace and promising him a reward. He's the one in the position of power. That's the impression he would like to give. He's trying to get the upper hand. But unfortunately for him, God had already prepared his prophet for exactly that kind of approach. And he had strictly warned the prophet not to eat or drink or return by the way he came, probably so it would be harder to track him down afterwards. 
And so the prophet said in verse 8, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you. It's quite the insult, especially to the king. No doubt the king would have been shocked by that kind of, of response. Like so many unbelievers in positions of wealth and power, he couldn't imagine someone who wouldn't want to be on his team, who wouldn't want to be his friend. He only knew how to think in terms of money and power. He had no eyes to see how really poor and pathetic he really was in the eyes of God. So the prophet humiliated him again, rejecting his pathetic offer and turning his back on him and going his way. Well, then the text takes us back in town to Bethel. There was an old prophet living in Bethel, and his sons came to tell him about what happened at the altar. Now, already just the fact that this prophet lives in liberal Bethel should warn us that he's probably not going to be the most faithful prophet. And the fact that his, his own sons were there at Jeroboam's sacrifice should also then arouse our suspicions. But the old prophet was interested in this young man of God from Judah. The writer here doesn't tell us why he took interest in him. Maybe he just found this younger prophet to be amusing. Maybe he reminded him of himself back when he was a young prophet, back when he still had convictions. Whatever the case, he got his sons to go and saddle this donkey, and he went after the man of God. And when he found the man of God, he asked him to join him for dinner, even though, of course, he would have known from his sons, because it says his sons told him what the prophet said to the king, so he would have known that this man had strict orders not to stop or to go any other way home. And to his credit, the man of God told him the same thing that he told the king. He said, sorry, God gave me strict orders not to eat food or drink water or go back the way I came. But then the old prophet did something unexpected in verse 18. He said, well, I also am a prophet just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with, me, uh, with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. Our text tells us that this was a flat-out lie, which, of course, we should already know. God doesn't change His Word. And it tells us a lot about the character of this older prophet from Bethel. We can take this, this prophet as sort of a representative example of the kind of prophets you would expect to find in Bethel at that time. Whatever convictions he might have had as a young man, a young prophet, he has certainly long abandoned them by now to the point that he's lying to people in the name of the Lord. But then we read the man of God from Judah does something that's unbelievable. Surely the author of this chapter is expecting us to, to just stop and think, wait, he did what? After all of his courage and his conviction facing the king of Israel, he followed this lying prophet back to his home. There's an important lesson in there for us. A prophet's greatest vulnerability, and the same is true for a pastor or any leader in the church, his greatest point of weakness is either his wife or his colleagues. And it's true, all kinds of convictions disappear at the influence of fellow pastors and professors. You look at denominations and federations that once used to stand for the truth, and you, you look at them and you think, what happened to those churches? 
Well, history shows that more often than not, the decay starts from the top and it goes top down from seminaries and ministerial conferences down to the people. It doesn't take much. One false prophet with influence has a great deal, uh, can do a great deal of damage. It's a prophet and a pastor's weak spot. And it's amazing, you you see it here happening. The man of God stood up so boldly to the king of Israel who could have had him executed for what he had said. And then he lost all of his courage and his conviction to a fellow prophet, to an older colleague. And really it's not just true for pastors and for prophets, it's true for Christians in general as well. Sometimes we can be so courageous and we know what we believe when we stand before unbelievers and yet we find ourselves crumbling in our convictions when we're together with other Christians who don't agree with our point of view and we find ourselves giving up what we believe in order to accommodate fellow Christians. So as they were there sitting and enjoying dinner, suddenly the word of God did come to this older prophet from Bethel. Probably it had been a while since that had happened to him. And suddenly he breaks the conversation they're having and he cries out in verse 21, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. And that's exactly what happens to this young man of God from Judah. After they had finished dinner, he went on his way, and a lion met him on the road and killed him. But then we we read the lion didn't even bother to eat the body, and it didn't even hurt the donkey. It just stood there. Now there's been a lot of debate about what exactly is meant by this story of the lion and the donkey. And and some would say maybe the lion somehow represents Judah and and the donkey represents Israel and so on and so forth. But but I think for one thing that kind of interpretation tends to, to turn what's a factual story. It's presented as history to us into sort of a myth or a symbolic kind of story. And, and, and secondly, looking for that kind of meaning in the story tends to overcomplicate the, the whole thing, and it tends to miss the point. The point here, the reason that God ordained that this lion would simply stand there, is that this is not something that a lion usually does, which shows everyone that this is an obvious act of God. God was punishing this prophet. Lions don't usually even kill for sport, and certainly they don't kill the man, uh, kill a person, and then just stand there next to his donkey. Well, word got back to Bethel, and when the older prophet heard about what happened, he went to go and see the scene, And he immediately recognized what was meant by what he saw. He recognized that this was an act of God for the disobedience of the the younger prophet. So he took the body back. And for this old, liberal, unfaithful prophet of God, it must have been a quiet and thoughtful journey back home. He must have reflected on his own life as a prophet of God. Maybe in his younger days, he really wasn't all that different from this man of God from Judah. And now he had just robbed this young man of his courage and his conviction, and it even caused his death. 
Well, when he got back to the city, he and his sons buried the man of God from Judah. And then we read the prophet cried out, Alas, my brother, and said to, to his sons in verse 31, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried, and lay my bones beside his bones. This old prophet, in his, in his final words, he realized that he and this man ought to have been like brothers. They should have been standing side by side confronting the king of Israel and the unbelieving Israelites. That's who he should have been in Bethel, carrying the word with courage and conviction and truth instead of just going along with the current trends in the northern kingdom. There's really nothing sadder than a minister of the word who discovers in his final years that he's lost all of the courage and conviction that he once had as a young man to those trends of liberalism that just eat away at the faith of pastors and churches and Christians. So what do we make of a story like this? Well, I think the biggest lesson of the story has to do, first of all, with Jeroboam. The author nowhere says, you know, this is the moral of the story or that's the moral of the story. But if you look at verse 33, right after the story is over, the author says, after this event, Jeroboam still did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests from the high places from among all the people. Any who wished, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from the face of the earth. So the author recorded this story, first of all, to tell us something about Jeroboam. If you, know some, if you know the rest of the book of Kings, you know that this sin of worshiping these golden calves comes back again and again and again with every king that follows Jeroboam. He sets the precedent and every king after him walks in it. And God makes it clear right here in the beginning what he thought about that precedent. Well, if we reflect on the story here, I can see at least five ways that Jeroboam is warned by God. Let's see if you can spot those as well. The first way that Jeroboam is warned is simply the warning of history. And this is more from chapter 12, verse 28. It says that Jeroboam took counsel and decided to make these golden calves. And you have to think, did he seriously not consider the history there behind golden calves? The last time Israel tried worshiping God through a golden calf, it did not go well. That was, of course, with Aaron at, at the, the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's amazing because Jeroboam repeats Aaron's mistake word for word. He uses the exact same words that Aaron used. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the first warning there is simply the warning of history repeating itself. Jeroboam would have had the books of Moses recording how the Israelites worshipped that golden calf and how God punished them with a, with a great plague. And, and so the saying holds true that those who don't learn their history are bound to repeat it. And that's certainly true also with biblical history. And it's true also really for us as well. This is one of the reasons why, why God gave us the Old Testament and one of the reasons we should continually study it. 
God gave, of course, the Old Testament for many reasons, but certainly one of them is so that we can see ourselves against the backdrop of history, so that we can recognize when when the church or when a Christian country begins to follow those same patterns that you see in, in the book of Kings or the rest of the Old Testament. How often when we go astray or when we fall into sin isn't Isn't it the case that the very first warning we receive from God is the warning of history, the warning of the difference between what we read in Scripture and what we live in our own lives, that inconsistency between the two patterns in Scripture and in our lives? So that's the first warning, simply the warning of history. The second warning that Jeroboam receives is the warning from the prophet that God sent. Jeroboam knew better. He knew that the temple was where God had made his name to dwell and that any prophet coming from Judah, from the temple, ought to be listened to, but he made the choice not to listen to the prophet that he knew God was sending. That's the second warning, just the the origin of that prophet. The third warning is when God intervened and removed Jeroboam's control of his own arm. At that, at that point, you would certainly think that any reasonable person would repent. The fourth warning is in the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy which the man of God spoke against the altar. It was in front of everyone, split in two, and the ashes were poured out. And so you would certainly think that for Jeroboam to see the altar torn in two would be enough to finally bring this stubborn king to his senses. And yet, sadly, we find it still wasn't enough. And there's a good lesson there for us as well. There's no reason to think that someone who already lives in God's world, who sees God's signature all around him, testifying to God's glory with the knowledge of God written on his heart, as, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, it, there's no reason to think that such a person, having given himself over to sin, would, would see one more piece of evidence and then suddenly be brought to repentance. Without the the working of God's Spirit, no evidence, no warnings are ever enough. And then the fifth and the final warning that Jeroboam receives is what happens in the rest of this story. What happens to the man of God from Judah. And you can see that this is meant as evidence against Jeroboam by the way that verse 33 comes only after the, the story is over and not right after verse 10. The reason this whole story is meant as evidence of God's intent to to fulfill His Word is we can see that God shows no partiality even for His own servant, the man of God from Judah. See, Jeroboam might have made the excuse to himself or to the people around him that this, this southerner from Judah was really just motivated by his political ambitions. He was loyal to Judah, and that's why he's speaking against this altar. But God demonstrated the truth of his word, and, and he demonstrated that the truth of his word has nothing to do with the individual who is speaking it. When God speaks, whether that's through a prophet or through the preaching of his word or through the admonition of a fellow Christian, how often aren't we tempted to say, well, you're just saying that because you have certain loyalties or you're just saying that because you're an elder in the church and you have to say that or you're just saying that because you have an ax to grind. 
And that's the excuse that Jeroboam certainly would have used to ignore this man of God from Judah. You're just saying that because you're from Judah. But the old prophet from Bethel, he realized the truth of God's word when he saw the body of God's servant lying there in the road as a result of the word that he had spoken. Or at least he figured it out sometime during the, the long walk home because he says to his sons in verse 32, after they buried the prophet, he says, This thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. The proof is in the fact that the man's message got himself killed. It was no advantage even to himself. And there's something to say for that kind of evangelism also for us today. When we share the gospel, people need to see that we are just as much under its truth as anyone else. We shouldn't ever make excuses for ourselves, which is a very easy thing for us to do. They should be able to see us not just sharing the gospel with them, but daily needing the gospel for ourselves, repenting when the gospel calls us to repent. That's how you witness for the gospel. That's how you show what the gospel looks like. As Christians, we don't just carry God's word to other people, deliver it, and then leave it there with him. We, leave, we live under it ourselves, and that's the first thing that people need to be able to see. And that's what the man of God from Bethel saw with the man of God from Judah. The message was no advantage even to himself. Well, that said, the incredible thing is, as verse 33 makes clear, in the end, none of these warnings were enough to turn Jeroboam from his sin. Even though the liberal prophet from Bethel figured it out, Jeroboam somehow still didn't. Apart from God's grace and apart from the Holy Spirit, no warnings are ever going to be enough. So Jeroboam does what every sinner would do when confronted by yet another warning from God. He rebuilt the broken altar and he appointed new priests to serve there. And as Israel's king then, his sin became Israel's sin. Now we know that all of that was in God's plan. You can see that in, in verse 33. Because God intended to bring down Jeroboam's kingdom. And so here's another lesson for us then. God's people needed to see that God's kingdom would never come through an ungodly man like Jeroboam. God doesn't need a man of wealth or respect or military might in order to, to build his kingdom. Jeroboam was certainly all of those things. But instead, God was looking for a man of righteousness who would obey him and serve him. And incidentally, that's what we should also be looking as we look for political leaders even here for the country of Canada. And so because Jeroboam was certainly not that, God's kingdom would never come about through him, then God had intended, you see this in verse 33, that God had intended to bring down Jeroboam's godless kingdom so that Israel and the whole world would learn what kind of king to start looking for. And you'll see this in every chapter of the book of Kings. It's one of the overarching messages of the book of Kings. 
It's, it's a long storyline that cries out king after king and chapter after chapter, every, every bit a little bit louder for a king who would finally come to change things, who would finally come to lead God's people in righteousness, who would fix the problem of idolatry that no king seems to be able to turn around. And in fact, that's not just true of the book of Kings, it's true of the entire Old Testament. It leaves us with this big open-ended question mark. Who's going to come and fix this? How are things ever going to change? And we know as Christians the only answer to that ever comes in, in Christ, the King whom God finally sent into the world. God sent him to be the king that Jeroboam never was, never could be, nor any other king, not even a man like David, a man after God's own heart. And well, Christ, when he came to Israel, he was the only king who had an answer to Israel's sin and idolatry. The only king who was actually able to establish righteousness, to turn things around, to build God's kingdom. And we know he reigns in heaven now, not just over the northern ten tribes or the southern two tribes, but over the whole earth. And the book of Kings then looks forward desperately to such a king to come and lead God's people in righteousness. So I think the main point of this chapter is to show how stubborn Jeroboam was and and how justified God was in bringing that kingdom down and then to direct Israel and us to start looking for a king that would be obedient, that would lead God's people away from the idolatry in which they were steeped. But this chapter, it isn't only about kings and, and kingdoms. It's also about prophets, people who are entrusted with the word of God, who are given the responsibility to speak the truth to their culture and also to their leaders. Our age is really not all that different from that age. We like to think that it is, but, but our age is very similar. Christ is reigning over our country. We live, too, in a theocracy. Sometimes people say, well, that was, Israel was a theocracy. That's not what we're in today. Christ reigns over Canada. And Christ then demands that our leaders also honor him and obey him and do justice and righteousness. And really, just like in those days, almost, our leader, almost all of our leaders also are self-professing Christians. It's true of our current prime minister. It's true of the leading candidates in all the major parties. And it's true of most of the leaders even here in the province of Ontario and even really here in, in Owen Sound. Most of the leaders here, are, are they, they call themselves Christians. And it isn't even just our leaders. It's our neighbors as well. Most of our neighbors still call themselves Christians. 67% of Canadians, by the latest measurements, still call themselves Christians, just like the people of Israel still would have called themselves worshipers of Yahweh. Now, of course, we know that this would be a very different country if that profession was, was true. But since it is their profession, we shouldn't be afraid to call them to go and honor that profession. See, too easily we allow ourselves to to miss opportunities to call long-lost sheep back into the faith of perhaps their parents or their grandparents or maybe great-grandparents because we feel like we don't have anything to appeal to. 
But the reality is, we do. As long as they call themselves Christians, we ought to go and call them to honor that profession. The man of God was able to go to Jeroboam, even though he was an ungodly king in every measurement. He was able to go to him and appeal to him to repent because he still claimed to be a worshiper of Yahweh, even though that claim was obviously insincere. So many self-professed Christians in this country are on the road to hell because their lives don't match their professions. They claim to know God, but they don't honor Him as Lord or serve Him with their lives. In, In many ways, our country is not all that different from ancient Israel was. 67% 67% of Christians claiming, uh, of Canadians claiming to be Christians, and yet this country, just like Israel, is full of greed and immorality and injustice and, and really every indication that that profession is meaningless. And so as Christians, we're called to be prophets to our country, whether our country is Saudi Arabia with almost no Christians or Canada with 67%. But then as we carry out that office of prophet, this text also calls us to watch ourselves. We aren't just called to speak God's word boldly in public. We're also called to obey his word diligently in private. Our our witness to the world, it gains us nothing if in the end Christ is not honored, first of all, in our lives and our homes where the world doesn't get to see us. And that also means that we must keep watch over ourselves in this church, that we would not go the way of the man of God from Judah, who strayed from the word of God under the liberalizing influence of, of the older colleague in Bethel. That unbelieving, liberalizing influence is is as old as ancient Israel and really older still and it's destroyed the convictions of so many churches and federations that once used to stand for the truth. So let's pray that God would preserve us because the word of God that we carry to the world does not make exceptions for those who carry it. The repentance and faith that we call the world to must always be the repentance and faith that we call ourselves to as well. Or we'll find ourselves just like that man of God from Judah, having called the world to obedience and then failed to obey himself. Now, of course, all of this isn't a call to legalism. It isn't a call to mere outward morality It isn't a call to lift up that heavy burden of obedience. No, it's a call to Christ. It's a call to believe. And then as we believe from the heart, let's let that faith also rule us, to rule our lives and to to rule every aspect of our lives wherever we have jurisdiction. The word of God that we carry as prophets is a word of grace, of hope, of opportunity to repent, just as it was for Jeroboam. As long as it's still called today, that opportunity remains. So to call ourselves to it is to call ourselves to the most joyful burden imaginable. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So let's call the world and ourselves then to that faith and repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ. Amen.